Are live sporting events capable of keeping the cable television industry alive? Or are live sporting events actually killing the cable television industry? And why are sports leagues killing cord cutters with game blackouts? If fans don't attend the games, is that killing the team's revenue? And how much revenue are teams getting for selling their television rights? With all this money exchanging hands, why are regional sports networks filing for bankruptcy? And why am I not getting paid for doing this podcast? These questions and many others will be answered on the next episode of Inside the Box. The following program is brought to you in living color. As early as 1923, David Sarnoff recognized the possibility of developing a television system. This is the dimension of imagination. Oh yeah! Now I remember! It's Inside the Box, the TV history podcast. Hello and welcome to Inside the Box. I'm Steve Voorhees, and today I'm joined with my friend and podcasting colleague, Jonathan Bollinger. How are you today, sir? I'm good. I'm good. I'm excited to uh, hear you guys go back and forth about one of your favorite topics, and that is sports and RSNs. What Jonathan is referring to is our special guest today, Dr. Craig R. Coonan. He is an author and researcher. Uh, specifically of the book From Sandlots to the Super Bowl, the National Football League, 1920-1967. We're going to be bringing him on today to talk about television rights, uh, how the league kind of did this cultural shift from focusing on how many gate receipts they were selling, you know, tickets per game, versus how fans could watch at home and how the television rights deals were brokered. And uh, he even brings baseball into his research. So I'm really excited to have him on. Steve, what, what kind of got us to this topic and this guest? Uh, uh, how, do we, how do we find ourselves here today? Well, as you know, Jonathan, I'm a big sports fan, and this has been sort of an ongoing topic of study for me. Uh, over many years uh, because primarily of sports blackouts and how the shift to streaming has in some ways limited fans' ability to watch their favorite teams. And that's dependent upon geographical location as well as who their cable provider is versus what streaming services they subscribe to. And in the winter of 2023, the news really captured my attention because it seemed to be the other shoe dropping in terms of what was going on behind the scenes in the business of sports and sports television. And that is Bally's RSN, the regional sports network, uh, which is owned by the Diamond Sports Group, which is a subsidiary of Sinclair Broadcasting, who purchased the Bally RSNs from Disney when Disney merged with Fox. Uh, and it, they were formerly known as Fox Sports Nets around the country. What we have found is that cord cutting, which means uh, subscribers of cable television cutting the cord and just going to streaming or not watching anything at all, but they're not subscribing to cable anymore. The loss of that money uh, not only made sports packages even more expensive and upping the amount of money that 
those who did stay with cable have to now pay for the sports rights, and they may not even be sports fans. That's a whole other uh, separate layer to this. But when the RSNs go bankrupt uh, or refuse to pay the sports licensing fees to the teams, what I discovered is that many of the team's salaries, in, including the players' salaries, were tied to the income from the television contract. And if that money gets cut off first, where will fans be able to watch their teams? How will those rights work? And, and then B, will the teams be able to keep their players on payroll? How is, how is the money uh, going to be replaced in terms of what the teams were expecting in generating revenue? And, and then that leads to a whole nother issue of why is television so important to teams versus the attendance at the gates and the fans actually sitting in the stadium and paying for tickets to watch the game live? Does that even matter anymore? So all of these questions uh, sort of bubbling to the surface in the winter of 2023, you know, sparked my interest in doing this episode. And today's guest is going to help us kind of figure it out because taking a historical perspective to this and understanding where we've been to how we got here is a big part of understanding this entire process as it plays out. And and even as we record this episode in 2023, there's going to be so many more changes to come that it's going to be something that we're going to probably have to revisit in in the coming months or years. Yeah, I, uh, I'm i excited to uh, uh, relive this with our audience. This is a great conversation. So, uh, Steve, I say we uh, just take them right now to... Uh to our conversation with uh, Craig. Very excited to welcome to the podcast, Dr. Craig R. Coonan. He is the author of the book, From Sandlots to the Super Bowl, the National Football League, 1920 to 1967. Book talks a lot about broadcast rights, a lot about the rise of the NFL on television, as well as other sports. He touches upon baseball a little bit in his research. Uh, Craig, very excited to have you here. Thank you for giving us time. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Jonathan, for having me. It's nice to be part of the podcast. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to talk to you about this today, given your background, extensive research you've done with the NFL and the Hall of Fame, and really, you know, starting at present day and working backwards, television and the RSNs uh, control so much of team salary and the business of franchises in baseball, as well as football and other other leagues. I'm curious, how did we get here? When did when did the gate receipts and our culture of attending a live sporting event become almost a secondary business to how these franchises operate? Yeah, it's it's incredible. It's a good question. It's incredible to see, you know, total revenue for franchises today and how much of that is from broadcast rights or from, you know, promotions and sponsorships. Uh, uh, for instance, a team like the Green Bay Packers who reveal their their uh, their, their balance sheet every year because they're a public owned team. They made $600 million last year, but over $340 million was from broadcast rights or sponsorships, which is incredible. It's, you know, 60% of the revenue. Um, when did it become that way? Well, the 60s, I guess. You start seeing it really take shape when the money becomes real. Um, much earlier than that, there's been sort of sort of this, like, affiliate, um, romance, I guess, with uh, uncertain romance between TV and the, and the sports leagues. They want to be part of... They want them to be more and more um, in their game, but they also are afraid that it will hurt the gate in the first few years. 
And I think by the 60s, they're resigned to the fact that TV is the future and TV revenue is gonna, what's going to put them over the top. There's a quote by an Eagles, Philadelphia Eagles executive in the early 60s, 62, I believe it is. And he says, TV is the main reason we're in operation uh, by uh, 62 by a guy named Joseph Donahue. So I think really this, uh, by the 60s, it's a realization, million dollars a year or more coming from revenue from television. You start seeing it not being the majority of revenue yet, but substantial enough that if they don't have it, they're going to lose a lot of money each year. So I'd say the 60s is when it begins, really. But you see this slow, gradual um, movement toward more and more television, playing around with television, fearing television at times, but you know more and more as, as the 50s and 60s go on. It seemed to be that the local city where the team is located, they almost punished their fans by limiting television. I mean, even to this day, right? We, we see restrictions on cable blackouts, uh, for, for especially for baseball. This idea, though, that the local city can't watch the game. They want, they want those right. fans at the stadium, but the stadium seating is limited. And, and yet we, we kind of see them looking at the limitation of the stadium versus the breadth of television, but almost more of a global audience than meaning to broadcast it to the local city, right? Yeah, one of the darndest things about baseball today is the blackout, right? You, as we were talking, you know, you can watch almost any game but your own home team game uh, because of the cable situation. That goes back to the earliest days of, of, of television and, and sports. In the 1940s, uh, football, especially the NFL, had a blackout rule in their league constitution that said you can't play home games whether or not the games were sold out or not. And that continued until the 1970s. Um, baseball was a little, strangely enough, baseball who did who did have a uh, antitrust exemption, who could have done it without any legal reper repercussions, didn't have that. And some teams played around with it. But um, both the NFL and baseball sort of experimented a little bit in the 40s and early 50s to see what impact free television would have on gate receipts. And in 1949, the Los Angeles Rams, who were a very good football team back in those days, they got an exemption from the league to uh, televise all their, all their games. So what they did is they had no TV in 1949 uh, for home games, and their attendance was, uh, what was it, 49,000 fans a game. Uh, the next year, they had six home games all broadcast on television in Los Angeles. And attendance dropped to 23,000 fans per game, which scared the heck out of out of all NFL teams and also other sports who were watching this. Uh, the following year in 51, they didn't televise games. Attendance went back up to 37,000, below 49, but still a substantial increase over that. So from the rest of the 1950s, 60s, and into the early 70s, you know, they didn't televise home games sold out or not, which was... Uh, uh, you know, the same thing happened with baseball in some regards, too. Some teams were very uh, open to that. The, the Cubs broadcast all their home games. The White Sox broadcast many home games on WGN Chicago, whereas um, teams like the Boston Braves in the late 1940s, they didn't know what TV's impact would be. So in 1948, after they won the pennant, they sold their TV rights to a local channel for home games four years for $40,000. So it was $10,000 a year to broadcast all home games. And the Braves saw, in those four years, the Braves saw their attendance drop 81%. Again, the, the Braves also were a pretty bad team from 49 to 52, and they ended up moving to Milwaukee in 53. But their attendance dropped from 1.5 million, 1.6 million, to 330,000 in 1952. They were bad, but TV was free TV for four years 
although it may not be the direct correlation, it certainly scared a heck the heck out of a lot of other team owners, and a lot of teams wouldn't broadcast games. When the Braves went to Milwaukee in 53, they had no home to games televised. I was just going to say, baseball has so many games in a season that you certainly don't expect a sellout, but for anyone listening to this now, I think we automatically assume NFL games are sold out every week. It's just a sellout, so why wouldn't you put the game on in the local city? The tickets aren't going to be available anyway, but that's not, that's not the way it was 80 years ago, right? No, in the 1950s, the NFL in the early 50s were 20,000 fans in a stadium in in Los Angeles that would seat 100,000 in the Coliseum or uh, 50,000 in, in New York or even, you know, 35, 40,000 in other smaller cities. Uh, by the end of the decade of the 50s, strangely enough, because they protected, people would say, we protected home gate, away games were televised, it brought interest into the sport, uh, uh, interest became it would correlate then into home attendance, and by the end of the 1950s, 90 percent of tickets were sold. So uh, they went from you know 25,000 fans per game in 1950 to 43,000 fans per game by 1959. Um, Forty you know 43,000 fans a game was substantial, and uh, they didn't make much money from 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 uh, television rights by 1949 59 or so. But uh, they people would say uh, George Hallis, owner of the Chicago Bears, would say, you know, more fans in 1951 or 52, I forget what year it was, more fans saw my team play this year than had seen my team play the previous 30 years of our existence because we were on television. And then that would bring more fans to the home games. And by the end of the decade, you saw that correlate into real money. Again, this was gate receipts, not television revenue, but it's, it's using TV to popularize and promote the game. Yeah. And what Hallis did, I really love that example in your book, is he doesn't focus on the Chicago area. He understands that's going to be blacked out. So he has to go to other states. And I think in your book, yeah. I think it was 11 stations. He gets 11 or, or a dozen television stations, uh, Dumont affiliates, because Dumont right. had the rights to the NFL at the time. And he spreads it far and wide into the southern area of the U.S. and further east so that Chicago Bear games are in markets that don't have football teams. And in a way, this was very smart in promoting the Bears and promoting the NFL without having to focus on the Chicago area. It was the Chicago fans that were then blacked out by it, almost hurt the most by it. But Hal is very smart in putting that network together. Yeah, he, he had affiliates uh, sign on with him from Omaha to Nashville and everything in between. So it eventually, it starts off with 11, grows to 15. By the 1960s, it's 77. Um, it's 77 small stations in 19 different states across the Midwest and the, and the Near East. Near West, I'm sorry. Um, it's, uh, it's something that was modeled by other teams. The Washington Redskins did that in the South. George Preston Marshall, a terrible human being, but was pretty good at business, uh, enlisted, uh, stations from Atlanta all through the South, 37 stations in, in, uh, a number of states. I forget, I think it's 11 states. Uh, the same thing with the, uh, Giants, New York football Giants in the Northeast. They had a number of those. The Packers even did that a little bit as well, even though they were a smaller market team. Some teams that didn't do that were seeing themselves uh, you know, not getting as much, um, uh, not, not just basically revenue by the end of the decade. It was a, it was a cash cow for the, for Hallis and Marshall and the, and the Giants, the Browns as well. So um, it was a very ingenious way to, one, promote your team, popularize the sport, and then bring in more revenue and interest in the sport. It, it led to a number of things for professional football that popularized the sport. Um, magazines, a lot of attention with uh, not just uh, – 
national magazines, but sports-related magazines, football cards, um, you know, baseball cards predate the 50s. Football cards really become something in the 50s. So it's a number of ways that popularize the sport. You know, you also had quarterback club TV programs. You had coaches. You had players, old players coming on, having pregame shows, postgame shows, evening shows that would talk about the upcoming games, highlight reels, you know, highlight shows, which were something that never happened before. It really tried to um, make the game much more appealing, and it did. Um, the league knew that, and and in their league meeting, uh, meeting minutes in professional football, they you know talked about we need to have broadcasters who are always positive, always say positive things, always talk about the excitement of professional football, that anything can happen in professional football, it's unpredictable, and all that kind of thing. And trying to you know they had a way that broadcasters had to talk. If they didn't speak that way, they couldn't broadcast NFL football games. One of the first impacts or maybe negative impacts that we see, not from a fan perspective, but within the league, is the disparity that teams would, uh, that developed, I should say, within the, in terms of team revenue. So uh, citing your book, 1952, the New York Giants, they sold their television rights for $108,000. Same year, Packers, $24,000. Right. I mean, that's right. a huge disparity. What did that do on the field? I mean, what was the result of it on the field in terms of being able to sign players and field a, a good team? It's it's not a huge disparity. It's a huge disparity, but it's not yet because the stakes were very low. You know, uh, when your total revenue is a million dollars and it's it's ten percent of the revenue of the Giants, it's two percent of the revenue of the Packers. So it's it's going to add up over time. But as the stakes get higher and higher, it's going to be a, a serious concern. The same thing's happening in baseball, too. Teams like the Yankees, who have much more appeal, are able to get more money for television uh, rights than other teams. Broadcast networks only want to put on uh, teams in their national market, national games, like the Yankees or the, or the Cubs or the Red Sox, or teams with more of an appeal to larger, larger audiences. And you see the same thing. It's, it's like I was looking at a, a TV contract that CBS had in the early 60s with baseball for national televised games. And of the contract that CBS had, it was an $895,000 TV contract with Major League Baseball. $500,000 of that contract went to one team, the Yankees. And so, you know, I think the, the, the stakes were a little bit higher in baseball for, for TV revenue early on, perhaps, because it was a much more popular game. And, you know, one, they already had that imbalance in baseball between the haves and the have-nots. And I think TV a little ex exacerbated that a little bit more in baseball at first in the 50s, where you saw the good teams staying good and the bad teams having having no chance. And teams then, in the, by the late 50s and 60s, some of the teams that had relocated in the early 50s, like the Braves, um, the Browns, the A's, and other teams that had moved, they were moving, they're looking now to move in the, in the 60s to greener pastures which would not mean more fans, but it would mean more revenue from television markets, doing some things like getting a network, getting local broadcasts. And you see that with um, Charlie Finley with the uh, Kansas City A's. He moved his team from Philadelphia. Well, he wasn't the owner at the time, but Philadelphia moved from Philadelphia to Kansas City in the middle 50s. And then um, in the early 60s, Finley bought the team and he wanted to move the team elsewhere. He wanted to move the team to Atlanta, to any, you know, you name the city, a city that had more prospects for um, broadcast rights. And uh, he they wouldn't let him move for a couple of years. And I think because he was a unique individual in many ways, but uh, you know, 
this happened eventually in 65 with the Braves, the Braves who had had 13 successful seasons in Milwaukee, winning a World Series. They, um, they up and left and went to Atlanta because it was a, uh, a city that was bigger, sure, but it was also untouched. There were no other Southern teams. They could do what George Hallis did with having a network of uh, affiliates showing games, not just in Atlanta, but throughout the entire South. And it meant a, it meant a lot to the Braves, and it ushered in a new era of, uh, of franchise relocation, which meant now you can move to a place not just because they have fans, but because of their broadcast area is uh, green pastures, open pastures, you know, something that we could... Uh, really um, make a lot of money from. Yeah. I, I want to talk about the early 60s because the Sports Broadcasting Act is signed in 1961. And this changed a lot of how the television, well, I guess it wouldn't change because the NFL was already doing this and breaking antitrust laws, but it gave exemption to leagues uh, to be able to control the broadcast of every single team. And the NFL is a little different because baseball, the NHL, NBA, they contract on a team-by-team -team basis. The NFL the NFL itself, the league contracts for all of the um, all of the teams on a network level. And I was wondering if you can just sort of talk about the difference of this. What did, what did that act do that that changed the landscape of how we watch sports on TV? Yeah, the Sports Broadcast Act of 1961 just made legal what was already happening, uh, not with the NFL first, but with what the with the American Football League, the AFL, which did that in 1960. But um, in 19, it goes it goes way back. Uh, uh, indulge me, I guess. In 1952 and 53, the NFL was part of a court case where a local affiliate in Erie, Pennsylvania, was suing the NFL to be able to broadcast games locally, despite the fact they were not within that they were too close to the cleveland they wanted to, uh, 75 miles cleveland. right they had to be outside right. the 75 miles and they and they were 70 miles away they said and that was not fair and they they did a did an assessment that said that only 25 fans from erie go to browns games each weekend it's not fair for all of erie to be shut off because of 25 fans going to browns games so they sued the nfl and the for antitrust violations trying because the nfl was very open about their their blackout for home games and uh, not allowing this and it was in their constitution and the meeting minutes were given to them by art rooney the, the owner of the steelers and they all read these things and it was like there it was they were violating antitrust laws but the court case went to trial the court case had a decision and uh judge grimm who is the court uh, the, the judge in philadelphia federal court came down and said they can they can't um they can still have their blackout within 75 miles um you know but they can't have the commission the, the commissioner one of the three terms of the the deal though was they can't have the commissioner approving or rejecting league-wide contracts every team can have their own television contract but the commissioner can't approve or reject one um, so here we are now, nine years later, and the world has changed in television broadcast rights because it's changing every every year. It's changing, you know, by 80, 90 degrees. It seems like. Uh, so in, in in the middle fifties, Burt Bell, who was the commissioner of the NFL from the forties to the late fifties, had an idea because he saw what you said before about franchise revenue and the long term effect. It wasn't really hurting the NFL in the fifties, although some teams were pretty bad, like the Packers and the Cardinals, and they didn't get much money from revenue. But he saw he was very he was he saw the, the the end game here. He saw that this is going to be a problem for the NFL in the future. In 1954, Burt Bell negotiated a contract that would have uh, given every team a lot more money than they got. Right, they, a contract that was uh, 
let me let me I gotta, I gotta check the numbers exactly but it was it was more money than they, than they were would have had so um it was uh that was rejected the, the the some of the teams Hallis, some of the teams that had been very outgoing to get local networks together regional networks said no we don't want to do that in 57 burt bell tries to do it again he says okay now we're moving forward that's more money involved let's try to have a league-wide contract and again the cleveland browns good team the, the giants um the the uh, bears we're not going to do that the redskins 1960 comes around and a guy named Lamar Hunt uh, organized a, a league of, of rivals to the NFL. Guys like Bud Adams and Baron Hilton and uh, Ralph Wilson, very wealthy individuals who owned teams in this league. But they realized that they didn't have, they had eight teams and they had four wealthy guys who ran the teams and four teams that weren't very good. And they needed to get a presence on television. Um, so they went to ABC and Harry Wismer was an executive at ABC who was a, a former NFL uh, player. He was an announcer. He'd been in media for a long time. And Wismer said, I think ABC would like to have a partnership with the AFL, this new upstart league. We can't give you very much money, though, this first year because we, we don't want to. We're not worried about it. But if you last year two, year three, year four, year five, we'll give you more money. So the first year, they signed a contract for $50,000 per team, a league-wide contract. AFL teams got $50,000, which was half as much as the lowest NFL team got that year. So it was not very much money. Some teams were getting $350,000 in the NFL. So the AFL teams each got $50,000. Um, 61 comes around, and the AFL teams said, we're going to come back for 61. The, the, the contract clicked into year two, and year two, every AFL team got $225,000, which was higher than the average NFL team. The NFL t averaged $198,000 per team in 61, and the NFL, um, AFL got $225,000 per team, which was an atrocity because the ratings were so different. 30 million Americans watched NFL games on Sunday, and the share um, in the late 60, in, in 1960, AFL market share went from 3.9 to 7.9. You know, there was a few million Americans watching AFL games and 30 million Americans watching NFL games, but yet they got paid more for it. So in January of 1961, the commissioner of football, NFL football, Pete Rozelle, finally said to the owners, can I please negotiate a contract? Um, Burt Bell had passed away. New commissioner was Pete Rozelle. Can I negotiate, negotiate a contract with this CBS now? Dumont's been long gone for a while. And um, they said yes. And by April of 61, he got a contract that every team in the NFL would make $333,000 a year, which was about what the Browns were making and about a little bit more, a little bit less than what the Bears were making. And he said this is an altruistic decision on the part of Larry Wellington Mara and his son, John Mara, with the, with the uh, Giants and George Hallis. Thank you so much for doing this because you're taking a cut or, but everybody else is being lifted up. Art Rooney was overjoyed in Pittsburgh and the Packers were able to survive because of this. They went from $100,000 a year to $330,000 a year overnight. And everyone was rejoicing in the NFL. And a few weeks later, a few a month later or so, the U.S. Justice Department comes in and says, "You can't do this," <laughs> and and they're saying, "Humana, humana, humana, what?" You know, uh, because of the antitrust law, right? Yeah, the the 1950 well, the 1953 court decision with with Judge Grimm in Philadelphia explicitly said to you, Burt Bell, now Pete Rozelle, you can't approve or reject a league-wide contract. That's against the, the that's you are not exempt. Because of that, you need to get an antitrust exemption to do this. 
And instead of going to the Supreme Court, the courts take forever, and it would have taken years, he went to Congress and lobbied Congress and lobbied senators and, and you know, and talked to President Kennedy. And, and by the fall, in September of 61, Congress passed the law, Kennedy signed the bill, um, and it was by 62, they couldn't do it in 61, everyone still got their pittance, but by 62, they now were able to have a league-wide contract. Um, they were complaining, why don't you do this to other leagues? And they said, well, we'll get to them. But you're the first one, you're the easiest target. You're the one that is more obvious. It's in your meeting minutes. You already have a previous case that we were going against and you are violating. But the, the Sports Bill Broadcasting Act of 61, it, uh, it opened up the gates, not just for the NFL, but for every other league. It legalized what the AFL would do. And even though baseball doesn't have league-wide contracts for all teams all the time, they do have league-wide contracts with for, for World Series games, for playoff games, for games of the week. Uh, in fact, uh, the majority of the revenue today um, from sports broadcasting for many of the baseball teams comes from league-wide contracts. You get over $90 million a year from from those three networks alone from broadcast rights, which some teams like the Marlins and the, and the Brewers are making $30, $40 million a year from their own um, regional networks. You still have a lot of money coming from uh, TV contracts that are more national. So in 1961... I mean, they're embracing television clearly here. They're paving the way with the exemptions for their leagues to do what they will with, with the team's rights. However, blackouts are still very much baked into this bill in terms of protecting those gate receipts, right? I mean, the whole point of a blackout is to protect gate receipts, or is, or is there another reason I'm not seeing? No, the blackout, right, the blackout rule doesn't go away for another decade, Um in football, uh, and it's still got caveats even after that. You know, the blackout is still part of the TV contract. So if you're if you don't sell out, um, if you don't have if you don't if you don't if you sell out or not in any home city, if you if you're a Lions fan and the Lions are good and they sell out, you can't watch it on television in the '60s. You or the 50s, you can't. Um, why? It seems absurd. It seems odd that you can't do this, but it was part of, you know, it was baked into their league constitution. It was becomes tradition. We're going to protect gate receipts. In 1952, the NFL had a, uh, going back, way back again, again, they tried to do this. They, they said, um, the, uh, there was a playoff game in Detroit saying that um, we're not going to broadcast the game. They sold 50,000 seats in two days before the playoff game. And then there was such an outcry in the public saying, please, can we just, well, we have 7,000 seats left to, to sell. Um, can you, can you, we, can we watch the television? Can we watch this on TV for free at home? And the NFL, again, did their one time they made an exception. Okay, we'll put it on television. And those 7,000 seats, only 70 seats sold in the next week. And everyone watched it free on television. And the NFL vowed never again. It's foolish, especially if you do sell out in advance or by a deadline not to put it on television. But the NFL continued that policy until the early 1970s, when finally public outcry, you know, from as high up as President Richard Nixon said, this is ridiculous. I want to watch the Redskins. I want to watch games in the White House, you know. Um, finally, they changed the, the, they changed the policy and um, it was okayed by those by you know, again with antitrust. It was put through the test with antitrust laws and things, and you can do this; it's not a problem. But even after that, you, you know, if you don't sell out, you don't have TV. You don't have it's not it's still blacked out in the NFL. Even for that, if you have a home playoff, a home game, uh, 
you couldn't at times get the second half of a doubleheader on a different network because you want to protect the home gate and don't want to watch a free game between two teams that are, you know, in the West Coast or something. So it's uh, it was uh, very slow. Even you know, as the as the cash cow gets bigger and bigger for the NFL, they're very slow to give away anything for free because they're afraid that if they give away too much, they're going to lose the cash cow. Right. A lot of self-preservation baked into this because cable explodes right. in the 1990s. I mean, it was it was around in the 70s and 80s. You probably watch <laughs> Braves games on TBS or the Cubs games on WGN because those were super stations. Right. So in the explosion of cable, certain baseball teams were, were kind of just giving the rights away as national broadcast. Right. So the Brave right. local uh, TBS affiliate is a broadcast channel in Atlanta. But we're getting it through cable in every city that, you know, subscribes to TBS or every cable system that did. When the RSNs get developed, though, this was when I think we we hit the point of no return, which is causing all the problems now, is that these teams realized people who are not fans, who will never attend our games, we can still get them to pay for these rights. And it was that cable bundle that seemed to be the turning point uh, that still the blackouts persisted. Uh, it gave cable companies a lot of power for negotiating and bundling channels, uh, but it also um, gave teams a lot more money. And in fact, the teams ended up owning or taking partial ownership of the RSN. So can you talk about that moment in terms of the pivot to to cable? Right. You know, and I, I think you, this is where you differentiate the two sports. Football is so far behind in that and different sport because it's a once a week kind of game where baseball um basketball hockey there are so many games and so many local uh, broadcasts that it's hard to um bring that all in under one umbrella but right you know i'm a cubs fan because i watched wgn sports when i was nine years old when i lived in arkansas i lived in wisconsin and wgn was a staple of, of what i watched i became a cubs fan you know it was a sad thing to see uh, in 2019 that the Cubs went off the air WGN and no longer could we watch Cub games, you know, on WGN Chicago, Um, you know, Harry Carey and all those guys, they're like, when I hear, you know, for all the Cub fans out there, when I hear the song Jump by Van Halen, I think of, oh, here comes leadoff man, because that's the beginning of a Cubs broadcast in the middle 80s. I will also say this too, because Cubs played afternoon games. I did notice in my youth, hey, Cubs are in the afternoon, you have dinner, then the Braves are on. Braves. And if you had you know, a local station wherever you lived, I was in the Philadelphia market, you had the yeah. Phillies. There were a lot of games available for, I wouldn't say free, right. you're buying your basic cable package, but, it, but they, weren't, you know, they weren't extracting tons of money for those no. rights yet. And, that's, and that's, 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 a, that's an issue, again, you know, where the cable television in the 1990s into the 2000s, you start seeing this with the Yes Network being one of the very first networks back in 2002 that sort of does this for the New York market, the regional market, goes into other markets because it comes in affiliate. It's very important for folks around here to have the Yes Market as part of their cable package because they're Yankee fans. And again, people who are not Yankee fans are not paying for the Yes Network. And the benefit initially went to the Yankees and other who own the Yankees still own a part of it. I think they only own a third or a fifth or so of the Yes Network, and they sold it for a couple billion dollars to Fox, I believe. But um, this is a way you know, I can get non-Yankee fans to pay for my for my games. I can make a lot of money that way, and it worked really well for the Yankees. And this is where you see a, this is the time in 2002 when the Yes Network starts. Starts you start seeing a lot of people complaining about the disparity in wealth in these franchises. You know, we need to retract some franchises that just can't cut it. You know, we need to get rid of the Royals and the 
Padres or whatever what it was back in those days. Um, and we need to find revenue sources, limit, you know, and this was the way of doing it. RSNs become the way of getting much more revenue for broadcast rights. Still, it's unequal because you still are reputation, geography, you know, but if you can put yourself into a group like the Diamond Sports Group or something like that, or Bally, Bally's, um, or FSN before that, it was all the same company, I guess. But if you can get yourself into that, you can make a lot of money without having a lot of fans. And that's the way to do it, I guess. And you start seeing uh, revenue going from five million to ten million to twenty million to forty million for teams that really um, you're still under the. It's not getting as much money as the Dodgers or the Angels or the Yankees, but they're making substantial amounts of money from this, and they're doing it really without expanding a fan base whatsoever. In fact, it's a lot of animosity toward these teams and these because I'm forced to pay for. Royals games, and I couldn't care less about the Royals, you know, and I live in, you know, wherever right. it might be. The, uh, so as a Phillies fan, in 2014, yeah. we, we know yeah. Netflix is online. We see the future of streaming. I mean, it's something I'm particularly looking at because of my job. And uh, the Phillies sign this ridiculous contract with NBC Sports Philadelphia, their RSN, for $2.5 billion for 25 years. So the Phillies are still in this contract until mm-hmm. 2041. So from right. 2016 to 2041 was the term of the deal. And I'm thinking television is going to be so different by then. But at the time, and I would say really up until maybe the last couple of years, people thought cable was going to be saved by live sports, right? It was live right, right. live programming, particularly live sports, that were key, that was keeping the cable system alive. And that you know the, the country is not going to abandon cable television for streaming because of sports. Now, with Bally's and Diamond Sports Group kind of in this collapse uh, and these unprofitable contracts, it's almost like sports is now killing cable instead of saving right. it. That, that now these cable systems, they can't dump their sports fast enough because it's, the rights are just too expensive. It gets passed on to the consumer and you know the consumer is paying. Uh, I got the number here for NBC Sports Philadelphia. They charge $13.35 a month per customer. So if you're a non-sports fan, you don't want to pay thirteen thirty-five. That's more than most streaming apps right now, right? So mm-hmm. it's it, it just seems like they've now reversed it completely, and it's killing the industry. Yeah, what what I what I what I see what I see is happening, and and hopefully this does happen. Is you know cable deteriorates further and further. The sports, you know, what happened with Diamond Sports Group is not a bad thing in my opinion. It's a good thing when you have long term positive outcome. A lot of teams with the Phillies and they sign these long term contracts. The Dodgers, the most notorious of them all, twenty five years for eight point six billion dollars. They get two hundred fifty million a year from the, this RSN, and they're able to sign Mookie Betts and you know all these guys. Is, you know they can they can have these terrible contracts and still be able to afford more contracts because they've got 250 million dollars a year coming in from from television plus the league contracts and everything else and although it boosts up some of the teams a little bit more than they should the good teams and big markets like the Yankees and the Dodgers have astronomical amounts of money compared to the small teams still there's a league imbalance because of RSNs even more so what's happening now is when you when these teams are losing their RSN the rights are going back to MLB, and MLB has been a much lifting are lifting blackouts. In San Diego, right? All those games, the right. blackout no longer applies to the Padres, and so this is something that we're seeing more accessibility. And what MLB didn't want to do is Diamond Sports Group said, "Look, the RSNs are failing. We're losing too many cord, you know, too much money to cord cutters." 
give us the streaming rights. Let us do a direct right. to consumer streaming solution and MLB won't give them those rights. So they're almost, uh, you know, MLB is speeding up this process by denying them the chance to try to reach customers through streaming. Right. And, and again, I think that, again, I've, I've, you know, the 14 teams that are part of, were part of this, you know, many of them are sort of liberating themselves, even though they're not getting the money right now, I think long-term liberation for their fans. Um, and it might bring down when, if other RSNs fail, if the Phillies or the Dodgers or whoever else would fail, those rights would hopefully go back to the Major League Baseball and those rights would then get rid of the blackout rule. They would lower the, uh, they would pool more money together. This is where you finally get a league contract in a way, you know, for, for baseball, if you know what I'm talking about. Um, going, doing what football, you know, it's hard to do this with 30 teams and 30 markets and 162 games for each team. But you can do this now with baseball and, and you can get rid of blackouts and you, can, and you can sort of bring more equality to revenue if you can get baseball getting those rights and distribute them evenly and negotiating deals and becoming part of this. The problem with that though is again, not everyone will, not every one of these RSNs will just, will fall apart. And when, even if they do, will the Yankees and the Dodgers and the Phillies and teams that have high revenue potential surrender those rights to the to Major League Baseball? And, and I think there'll be lots of resistance with that as well with some of these high revenue teams. And um, but the long term, this is what happened in the NFL in the 60s. And there were some certain altruistic moves that were done by some owners that I think if the future of baseball and baseball broadcasting will, are, are we equally altruistic? Is there, is there, a, why did football do it? Because they had a, they had a, uh, they had the AFL to contend with. I don't think that they do this. I think if the AFL didn't exist, football would be very different today. And we would have a much, who knows what the future would be like, obviously it's what if history, but you know, teams like Green Bay probably wouldn't exist. Yeah, um, teams, teams, bad teams would you know, be a much greater imbalance in revenue and so forth. Whereas baseball, they never, never have had that challenge. Well, at least they haven't had that challenge since the 1910s. It's been a hundred plus years, so it's it, they don't have to worry about competitors, and so therefore the Yankees, Dodgers, and high market revenue teams don't have to really be altruistic. Right. In in the age of streaming, that we have seen, the NFL did this, and I don't, I. I I guess both leagues did it. I'm trying to see if baseball maybe copied the NFL a little bit. NFL breaks out the Monday night football game. That becomes a package. They broke out Thursday night football, sold it to Fox. Now to Amazon, that becomes a package. People think Amazon and negotiating that breaks the antitrust law, even though the league has the exemption. You see arguments online about this. Major League Baseball had Sunday night baseball. They did a game of the week on ABC, NBC in the in like 70s and 80s. But you're seeing now in streaming baseball giving YouTube games of the week. Uh, and, and they're pulling these games from the RSNs, kind of nickel and diming them a little bit, saying, oh, Peacock gets a game. Friday night, Apple Plus gets a game. And those teams then black out to their local fans. You have to be on Apple Plus or you can't watch. So it seems like blackouts are still persisting, even in this yeah. age where we're hoping for more accessibility. Yeah, and that's, that's the thing with the NFL contract, too. The most recent NFL contract, which is enor enormous, and next year it kicks in, uh, just this year it kicks in, which will raise revenue for teams by $200 million per team, which is a lot of money. Um, one of the things is one game has to be on Peacock, exclusive Peacock game, which is a blackout to most of America. Um, you know, you have the new uh, Sunday package 
DirecTV is out and YouTube TV is in now for the Sunday package again, which limits it in some ways and changes it some ways. And, um, you know, so, yeah, you, you still have ways that you are that the leagues are trying very hard to maximize revenue and protect themselves and the, and the, and the networks who are dealing with them or the, the entities are dealing with them want to have some kind of exclusivity so they can get people to subscribe. So I understand Peacock and NBC, but again, you know, there is still that element where we're not going to give you everything for free. There's a quote going back to um, this 1950, 52, 53 court case again, where the um, the NFL argues, you know, the the, uh, the the station in Erie says, you know, people demand, you know, football on television. Um, they want to see football on television. And, and the, the attorney for the NFL says people would like free candy and free Cadillacs, too, but they ain't going to get them. You know? So <laughs> it's, um, you know, we don't some things are be free, but you're not going to get everything for free. It's, it's just because you want it. And that's a problem. Again, you know, we were dealing with very, a multi-billion dollar industry of, of sports leagues and more than that with the broadcast networks and the cable networks and the streaming networks and everything else that's happening today. And these are all businesses. So what people want, they don't always get because you got to protect what you have as a commodity. To bring this completely full circle, do gate receipts still matter? <laughs> you know, it's, it's funny. So much of history of sport is how do I get butts in seats? How do I get people to come to my game? How do, do I how do I not charge too much for revenue? How do I charge, you know, for a ticket? Um, going back to the 1860s in baseball, 1860s, right? And trying to, what, how much, should I, a dime or a nickel? How much should I charge for a ticket? Um, for football, you know, can we give away free tickets? Because we need people to pay eventually giving away free tickets. And, um, you know, by the 1960s, you know, can we show on t show sports on TV? And if we show them on TV, can we have them come to our games? Uh, you know, and teams are moving around because they thought, oh, we can get more seats, more butts in seats. But today it just, just doesn't matter as much. Local revenue doesn't matter as much. Based on 2003 numbers, nobody would have to go. If, if the NFL had nobody go to a game for a season, some teams would lose money and some teams would break, make money still, but the league as a whole would break even. That was 2003. Um, expenses have gone up today, right? So we had that in 2020. We had a season where we had almost nobody going to games in 2020 because of COVID and the pandemic and the Green Bay Packers who are the only team to divulge their balance sheet they lost 38 million dollars in 2020 38 million dollars a 500 a 371 they, they made 371 million dollars um and only 61 million of that was from ticket sales because they had a very limited number of people who come to games the whole season long um they they lost 38 million dollars but they still made what was the number they, they made over $60 million that year because of other investments. Yeah. So even though they lost $38 million in football operations, they made $60 million as a whole because of the organization and their investments. And, you know, so they had nobody come and they still made money. So that shows you it doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. That's very true. So there's a few things, Craig, that you that you brought up that I think are fascinating. And, and they really connect to some of the other folks that we've had on the podcast, like... Um, uh, Travis Vogan, who wrote about uh, NFL films and the and the role mythology played, and the first thing I want to talk about is is you know you mentioned these disparate elements that at the time, as one lives your life, their life, you know you don't see it all all come together. But of course, in historical hindsight, we see all the important pieces. So you mentioned the great what if, and we've talked about this in a different episode about Dumont, which is 
What if Paramount had supported Dumont? What if Dumont was on the ground floor with the NFL? What it became? Would we? Would Dumont be synonymous with the NFL? You know, for the past so many years. So that's of course fascinating. That's the first element. Then, as you mentioned, the AFL element of let's do uh, shared revenue, let's do all tide, uh, high tide rises, all boats, you know, kind of idea. And then, of course, he's a little overhyped, but he really was a man of his age, Roselle, understanding sort of the power of media to really sort of bring uh, uh, bring the NFL into the quote unquote modern age. And so it's only in hindsight that we see all those elements and, and of course, understand NFL as a monopoly who doesn't have a lot of their own ideas, but boy, are they good at buying out the good ideas of their competitors, right? So I love that you brought, brought up that. <laughs> right, right. So that's my, 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 my first idea there. The, the second idea is, you know, I, I think this is beyond the nuts and bolts that you and Steve are talking about. And, I, and I, I, I can't agree more strongly with Steve when he said, I'm so glad we had you on because you really got into the history of this. But I really think in a lot of ways, the, the sports and the, the shared revenue and contracts and television and the power and all that, I think in a really broad sense, it sort of gets to this idea of America as far as like the way we govern versus our economics you know, the free market, the, the, the sort of uh, dog eat dog versus the more socialist elements, right? Which is everyone sort of together. You know, one of the things you mentioned about America and the joint contract and the, the socialist aspect of it, the community kind of coming together. And, you know, I would, I would say it may be socialist. It looks like it's socialist and NFL owners have been accused of being, you know, socialist millionaires or whatever, in, now billionaires in the past. Um, I would say it's more oligarchy. You know, this is an oligarchy where it's a few rich guys becoming richer because they're monopolizing um, a, a pot, you know, and they're not letting others into the game. So yeah, I think oligarchy is, is more American than socialism is in many ways. So it might be something that is... Um, you know, that's a t-shirt right there <laughs> so anyway just a point on point on that one but and and the future you know you look at uh european sports or worldwide sports where community and, and fan bases are not so much geographical but they're based on you know maybe not even region not even nation but sponsor corporate sponsorships and you know will the team become the you know this packers mm -hmm. or whatever it might be and and you've had the red team, the blue team, and they're sponsored by whomever else, and you lose that connection. You still have very large and loyal fan bases for franchises that still, you know, will stand up and try to get Trey Turner out of his out of his slump and love Trey Turner for no reason whatsoever, but because he's making twenty five billion dollars a year, you know, <laughs> you know. But um, but but you, and you have Eagle fans who will go crazy for nearly a team that's never going to win anything. But um, <laughs> sorry, and, uh, shot fired, Craig. I got you. No, but I, I think that you still have very large and loyal fan bases for a number of teams. And you still have that dynamic you're talking about with the family and the fan bases. When will they realize that just doesn't, they don't matter. You know, when will they realize that, the, that these franchises that always did want their money because they want them in their seats, don't care about them anymore as customers in seats. They care about them as different types of customers and they care about folks who aren't customers and they want to get people who are on the fringes to pay money because, you know, they can. And that's that's going to be the, again, that's where maybe we'll be talking about this in eight to 10 years. And I imagine it's going to be a very different landscape within the next decade. Yeah. Craig, I do want to thank you for coming on and uh, discussing this. I hope our listeners found this interesting. We have now a, a good 
historical look, and that's something we had not previously done on this podcast, was really looking at how that culture changed from the gate receipts to the threat of television to embracing it, and then really mobilizing it as a very lucrative business for running franchises. So thank you very much for being here today. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Jonathan. I appreciate it. His, uh, his book, if you're interested, is From Sandlots to the Super Bowl, Dr. Craig Coonan, the National Football League, 1920 to 1967. We'll have a link to the book on the website. Craig, you know, once again, thank you. Thank you very much, Steve. I appreciate it. So that was our conversation with Dr. Craig Coonan. Jonathan, any closing thoughts about what we discussed in the interview? Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that I wanted to bring up, but, you know, didn't absolutely have to, but we were talking a little bit about, you know, this idea of how much do professional U.S. sports teams need uh, the physical fan in the seats? You know, how much do they care about it? They don't care about it. And I think for the most part, and certainly Craig was saying, like, they really don't care. You know, they, they he had a good example of uh, his beloved Packers where they, yeah, they lost money during the pandemic when we couldn't have physical fans there, but, you know, they still did all right. Uh, and, and the one thing I wanted to say is a really simple thing, which is if you're sitting physically at an NFL game, the action can be happening, the action be going on, the team could be building a rhythm, the offense, whatever, we could be in the middle of the action. But as soon as that gentleman on the sidelines with the bright neon orange uh, oven mitts starts making hand gestures to say that it's, we have to either stop because we have to go to a commercial and then when we're out of commercial, we can go back, that alone... <laughs> That alone proves that TV is always priority rather than, you know, what's actually going on in the stands, right? Because it doesn't matter what's actually happening live, right? That the feel of the game, that the, the the rhythm of the game, et cetera. It's like, oh, well, time to sell a Ram truck or time to sell some toilet paper or whatever with the Bears. Uh, so it, it, it was interesting. Also keep in mind that while the team operations for the Packers lost money during the pandemic, the overall franchise was actually profitable because of all the other business dealings that they had. And I want, I want to pitch something to you, and I want you to argue me on this. Prove me wrong on this. Live sports have become a television game show. That game shows and sports are now the same because the fans have been relegated to a studio audience that is meant to enhance the viewing experience at home and everything the athletes do on the field is for the television cameras. I am going to cheat here because you you told me that my task is I must counter-argue you, even though in my heart of hearts I don't want to counter-argue you, and I actually like your insight there. But for the sake of the game, I'll say this. I'll split the difference, which is it is more like an interactive game show but uh, on one side but on the other side it's a reality tv show so on the one side you have the narrative and the personalities and the reality tv show type drama right which quarterback hates which coach and did he uh, beat his girlfriend last night or did he wreck his car or whatever and how that's going to affect his ability to score touchdowns whatever and then on the other side the game show thing which is i agree with you on that but then there's the gambling aspect as well. And I was joking with somebody the other day where it's like, I bet someone said like, oh, if you physically go to the stadium soon, they'll have screens on the back of every seat so you can watch all the other action going on for other games. And I said, maybe, but but more importantly, it would be that you'd be able to gamble there. It'd be a, basically a digital slot machine while you're doing it. So 
So in my heart, I absolutely agree with you. But to counter this, I'd say it's it's a mixture of all those things. Uh, and uh, and really, I think we, we said this a little bit in, in the episode, but we didn't hammer on it. But it, it's not so much about business and business practice anymore. It's just greed. It's just, you know, I can make a little more money by giving YouTube this. I can make a little more money by doing this uh, apparel thing. I can do a little bit more money by getting into the business with gambling. You know, it's just, it's just, you know, there's a difference between keeping the doors open every day and profit, you know, and, and, and I don't think anyone's really worried about keeping the doors open every day, you know, thanks to these huge TV rights deals. Wouldn't it be cool though, if tickets to games became free? You know, you don't pay to, to sit in the studio audience if a price is right. You don't sit, you don't pay to go watch a Jeopardy in the studio audience. Those folks give those tickets away for free every day that they film to get a crowd that the host can feed off of, that they can cheer for their favorite contestant. You know, it's, it's to put, bring energy into the place. I see sports being exactly the same, except maybe sports, the only argument could be is that it's more exciting than a game show because people are willing to pay exorbitant seat prices and licensing fees to get your stadium seats, to get your season ticket plans. Uh, but could you imagine if, if you know, the Eagles go out and say, hey, we got to fill this 60,000-seat stadium on Sunday uh, afternoon. Let's start, uh, let's start walking around Philadelphia at 6 a.m. Sunday. Hey, who wants to see a free football game? Because we have to fill our seats for the TV cameras. Yeah. It's just a different way of thinking about it. I, I love I love this. It's like we've swapped roles here. You're starting to do crazy theories like I do. Um I love it, but I would say the other thing I was going to say then is sort of like people talking about AI a lot these days and like where is that going to run and fall in? And, and one theory I heard was, well, it'd be like anything else which with movies, which is uh, if you want to spend for the $5 fast food menu, i.e. in film, it will be a CGI character or AI generated, you know, face, you know, like a Princess Leia kind of thing with an AI generated script with green screen sets, etc., but if you're willing to pay a lot more money, then you can see real actors, good actors, you know, real sets a little bit. So I was going to I was going to say, oh, that's what's going to happen in sports. But in a sense, I almost feel like it's already there, which is uh, if you want to just do it all digitally, uh, you play the Madden version of professional football. And then if you want to pay an crazy much more money for hot dogs and beer and parking and seats and all that sort of stuff. You can see the live version for, you know, uh, much more. So in a sense, I guess it's, it's already happening. But yeah, I'm not sure. Well, something to ponder until we are together again. Yes. I uh, hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast episode. There's plenty others that we have out there that hopefully you can find us at tvhistorypod.com, also on Patreon. For Jonathan Bullinger, I'm Steve Voorhees. Enjoy the rest of your day wherever you are. We'll see you next time on Inside the Box. Inside the Box.